in Haggai, and I titled this uh, message, uh, Cheer Up Church, You're Worse Off Than You Think, which is a strange title maybe, but uh, as I read this passage as I, that I'm going to read to you in just a minute, um, I, I immediately thought of this song. That song was a, a Charlie Peacock song that was done in uh, 1995. The, the whole album is a really great musical piece. Um, honest. Uh, but as I read this next passage in uh, Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, I thought of this song, and I thought, you know what? I, I want you to hear the song. And so we're going we're gonna to play the song, and I'm going to click through the lyrics, and there's nothing but the lyric on the, t- on the screen, because I want you to think about the lyric. I don't want you to be distracted by a video. Does that make sense? So I want to, to hear that, and I'll click through um. His was a voice Fueled by truth it Spoke to us Of God's grace In a way That we could understand And take hold of This was a life defined by grace for a time and for a reason. And so we bow and give thanks to God for the life of our brother. It's just like hero from a sinner it's just like God to choose the loser not the winner it's just like God to tell a story through the week to let the gospel speak through the life of a man who will be the first to say cheer up something you think cheer up church you're standing at the brink don't despair do not fear grace is near it's just like Spirit. 
Cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. I I, oftentimes think that some of the greatest things that happen in my life are after God depresses me about something in my life. Uh, How many of you have experienced something like that? Um, God somehow, uh, in the way God works, he works his most encouraging moments in our lives after we have one of our most discouraging moments because of our own sin. And, uh, and, but that's what he does. He, he tells us, as the people of God, cheer up. You're, you're worse than you really think. <laughs> but I'm with you. I, my grace is with you. And I make heroes out of sinners. That's what I do. That's what I do because of the cross of Christ. And this passage reminds me of that. And so if you would stand for the reading of this text, and hopefully you'll hear a little bit of what I heard in this text as I, as I read it. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you declares the Lord. For as for this promise which I made, uh, uh, as for this promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also, and the dry land, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with me, come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God's word to us. You may be seated. So I said last week, this is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, um, just 38 verses. Last week we went through the first chapter and, uh, in, and the place of the book in the historical context and, and titled it in, in a way that uh, we talked about misplaced priorities, that misplaced priorities invite the discipline of God, uh, was the gist of last week's message. And God is passionate for his glory. Uh, He is passionate for his glory, and he will not bless lesser pursuits than his glory. He wants us to be passionate for his glory. Now, and I said last week, sometimes you think of that and you say, well, isn't God egotistical? No. When the greatest being in the universe wants you to pursue his glory, he's inviting you to your greatest joy. That our our greatest joy is tied intimately to bringing glory to him. 
And so that is the, that is the teaching of the Scripture from the, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New. God is passionate for His glory, and He will not bless lesser pursuits in our lives. We saw that the value last week uh, of, uh, of being honest with God about the prior priorities of our lives. We saw that God wants our highest priority to be His greater glory. And when we live lives for the greater glory of God, for the spread of His fame, for the, for, for the spread of His kingdom, He delights in us, and He delights to bless us. When we live for less than His glory, when we replace uh, living for His glory with living for our comfort, or living for our convenience, or living for our, our own security, or living for our own will, or our own pleasure, when we do that apart from His will, then God directs the whole of the universe to hammer us, to let us know that He wants us to, to experience his, our greatest joy and that his, our greatest joy is going to be connected to pursuing His glory. Anything else is putting something else in our lives above God, and it's a breaking of the first commandment. It's, putting, it's, it's having another God before us instead of Him. And the Israelites in 520 B.C., because that's exactly when this happened. In fact, this particular message that I just read uh, from chapter 2, first nine verses, occurred, we know historically, on October 17th, 520 uh, B.C. Approximately 50 days after the opening of the book, um, this message uh, came to Haggai uh, to give to, to Zerubbabel and to Jehozadak and to the whole remnant that had come back from uh, Babylon and had come back to a wasted land. They had come back to a land where the crops uh, had not been grown for 70 years. and There's weeds in all the fields. They come back to houses that were dilapidated. They'd come back to everything needed to be rebuilt. They were supposed to start building on the temple immediately. They started to do that, and then they got discouraged, and they stopped. And for 16 years, the temple of God was not being built as people pursued their will, their glory, their comfort, their convenience. And so 16 years into that, first chapter occurs, and God says to them, um, why is it that you are living in your paneled houses and my house that I brought you back to the land to fill and to rebuild, my house sits in ruins. That was chapter 1. God says, get your priorities right. And immediately, as we talked about last week, they did. They repented. They got their priorities right. They started to work on the temple. They started to rebuild it. They started to lay its foundations again. It had been stripped bare. And so now they're building, rebuilding the, the temple. They're 50 days in. And as they look at that foundation that is being built, and they've had a couple of delays during that time because this was the season of some of the festivals where there would be work stoppages so that they could just worship. But as they look at the foundation, Ezra tells us that when some people who had seen Solomon's temple some 60 years before, when they saw the foundation of the new temple, the second temple being built, they wept because it did not compare to the glory of the first temple. They were dis discouraged. They were depressed about what they were able to do uh, at this time uh, in their lives and what, what the temple looked like. 
And so that's what happens here in this passage when God brings it to their attention. And he says, who is among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Sometimes in our lives, we, we're in situations like that. We, we look at what others are doing for the kingdom of God. We look at what we're doing for the kingdom of God. We look what others uh, are doing with their gifts and talents, and we think, like, well, I can't make any contribution. Or that uh, what I'm contributing isn't that much. But in, in the midst of that, and God shows us, sometimes, sometimes that's true. Oftentimes it's just the evil one attacking us. But sometimes it's true. Sometimes other people are doing more for the kingdom of God than us. Or, 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 and, and we're not offering much to God. Sometimes it's true. The evil one will come and attack in either case. But here's a situation where God brings this to their attention, that what they're doing with all of their might, with all of their effort now, they've thrown themselves into this work. For 50 days, they've been working on, on rebuilding the temple. For 50 days, they've been w- walking at reestablishing a place where the, where the worship is going to go uh, as prescribed by the Jewish law in, in the Old Testament. For 50 days, they've been working on that. They haven't gotten too far. They've laid the foundation. Some people are looking at it, and they're discouraged. And right then, God comes with this message Verse 4, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all, all of uh, the people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, your, your God, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. When, uh, when we were raising the kids, one of the things that I would do periodically with them as... Um, You've seen this. Um, the room is clean, right? The kids come into the room, and within 10 minutes, every toy is everywhere, and every pillow from every sofa is everywhere, and it's just, you can't walk. How many, am I the only one that's experienced that? Okay, okay. Everybody's experienced that, Right? It's like the kids, they pick, up, they pick up one toy, they are fascinated with it for about three minutes, and then they drop it, and they go pick up something else, and they're fascinated with it for three minutes, and then they drop it, and it's just, and it's just chaos. And they would look, I'd say, kids, clean up the room. You, gotta, you guys got to clean up the room at the, you know, you let it go for, you know, a long time, and then and, and finally it's time to clean it up. Kids, we got to clean up the room. Oh, do we really have to? You know, it always went better when I said, come on, let's play the cleanup game. And I got down on the floor with them and started sorting and putting the toys where they needed to be. It always worked better. That's what God is saying to Israel right here. You've got a big task in front of you, and you're disappointed, and you're discouraged, and, and, and I, I, I know that it looks daunting, but I'm telling you, take courage, because here's why. First reason why. I'm going to give you five reasons why. Five reasons to cheer up. And the first one is simply that. I'm with you, God says. There are times in our lives when we just, we need to take inventory and say, yeah, okay, I'm not who I should be. I'm not who I could be. I'm not who I wanted to be. 
But cheer up, church. You're worse off even than you know, but your God is with you. And that's what God was saying to Israel. No, you're not who you should be. You're not who you could be. You're not who you might have been. You've been away from the land for 70 years now, and you're rebuilding the temple, and you don't have many resources, and the land is blighted, and you're not very rich, and you don't have many resources but, to, to do this. But, uh, but cheer up, church. Cheer up, Israel, he said to them. I am with you. And God is saying, I, I'm, I'm here. I am with you. And by the way, this is a prefiguring of what Christmas is all about. Because what does the name Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God is with us. That is, this is, God has come down to be a part of this existence with us. He shares it with us. He is with us. First thing to be encouraged about that God gave to Israel, and the first thing he continues to say to the church today is, I am with you. In the struggle that you're having right now in your family, in the struggle that you're having with drugs or alcohol, in the struggle that you're having in relationships, in the struggles that you're having at work, God says to you who feel like, I don't have the resources to fight this battle. I don't know if I can do it. God says, I, you're not doing it alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's an encouraging word from God. A number of times he's called, not just, he doesn't just call himself the Lord, but he calls himself the Lord of hosts, which is a, it's a military term. It's God saying, I, I am the commander of the armies of heaven. He's saying, I have all the resources that I need to do all that needs to be accomplished through you. That's an encouraging word, is it not? To hear that God is with us and that he has all the resources that, that, that he needs to accomplish that task. And that's, by the way, is what he's saying when he gets down to verse 8. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All the silver and gold of anywhere on the planet, mined or unmined, belongs to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And sometimes when, when we have a need, we just need to ask him, Lord, would you sell some of the cattle? He owns all the silver, all the gold, all the gold, all the silver, everything you're going to need to rebuild the temple, to restore it to, to, to glory. I have it, and I'm with you. See, God wants the people of Israel to be encouraged. He wants us to be encouraged. And, and, and that is the theme of, uh, that flows out of the, the Apostle Paul's messages to the early church. For instance, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Why don't you turn there? Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. He dwells with those who receive his forgiveness. He dwells with those who call him Savior and Lord. He desires that our lives reflect the, his holiness and love and compassion and the compassion of his character. So here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Paul speaking to the Colossians. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
Ephesians chapter 2, a couple pages uh, earlier. So in your, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. See, this is, God wants us to know that he is with us and he's working in us and he's building in us and making us a holy temple for him to dwell. Because in the New Testament, where is the temple of God? Where is it? It's right here. It's the people of God. God dwells in us. He resides with us. He lives with us. He walks with us. He's a part of every day in our lives. He empowers us for godly living as we, as we lean on him and trust him. Last week in the first chapter, we looked at the Israelites and how they responded. And, and that they had been, been giving God, they hadn't been giving God first place in their lives but when Haggai told them what God desired, they immediately started to do that. And God said to them when they did, I am with you. I am with. And he says the same thing to us today. Jesus put it this way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When we follow Christ, everything that we need for life and godliness is added to us. Jesus says the way to peace and security and happiness is to make his priorities our priorities and to not let anything interfere with keeping his priorities as our priorities. And as we do that, God says with, that we can know with confidence no matter what is going on around us, no matter whether or not our contribution is little or, or, or great, God is with us in the midst of that. It's encouraging. Second reason why we should be uh, encouraged is we should be encouraged because um, he says, my spirit is abiding in your midst. My spirit is abiding in your midst. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of the Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. That's the New American Standard Version of, of verse 5. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. If God is for you, who can be against us? How many, time, how many times have you read uh, Romans chapter 8 just to be encouraged about there's no separation between you and God? Never can be, never will be because of what Jesus has done. And just to read chapter 8, verse 26 of Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. Any, has anybody ever been in a situation where I don't know what to pray? I don't know how to pray. 
I mean, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on in my family. I don't know what's going on at work. I don't know what's going on with my brother or my, my sister or my mom or my dad. And he just, he just don't know how to pray. Here's what, here's what the, the Word of God says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's what he does. In the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the heartache of life, He is with us and His Spirit abides with us in our midst. And this is the exact message that God gave to the Israelites as they're looking at a temple and weeping over what it isn't compared to the the first temple, the Solomon's temple that had so much glory associated and was covered in gold. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Notice it doesn't say all things are good. It says that God is so big, so awesome, so with us that He is big enough to cause all things to work together for our good. Even some of the things that happen to us that are not good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you get to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, that's, that's the import of a phrase like this in the Old Testament. My spirit is abiding in your midst. I'm not going to leave you. I've got a covenant with you. I'm with you. And Jesus, in the New Testament, has sealed that with his own blood. My spirit is abiding in you. And so then you get the command, do not fear. And that's, in a little way, that's what I'm doing when I'm on, on the floor picking up toys with my children. It's a daunting task. They don't know how they're ever going to get it done as they look at the chaos that they've created. But when dad gets down on the floor and helps them, suddenly it becomes manageable. They can take courage. They don't have fear. And on a much bigger, much broader, much more important scale, that is what God does for us in the cross. He tells us, he announces to us, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. My spirit dwells in your midst. People, we've got to take this such truth as this. We've got to take it to heart. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to, we've got to motivate our hearts that, uh, and embrace it in the midnights of our lives when hard times are around us, we've got to embrace this truth. We have to re-preach this truth to us in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our heartache, in the midst of us. We need to remember God is with us. That God is in our midst. And that was the import of this as they're looking at this temple and they're looking at the foundations that they've been able to do in the first 50 days of rebuilding a temple after 60, after 70 some years of not being away from there. They're looking at the temple and they're discouraged and they're, they're, they're crying out. Some of them are weeping as they remember the former glory 
some of them, uh, a few of them perhaps, that had actually seen the former glory of Solomon's temple, and many of them that had heard their parents and their grandparents talk about the great glory of the temple in Jerusalem. And they came back, and it was gone, and it was destroyed. And now they're starting to rebuild it, and they're just 50 days in, and there's a lot of block to be laid, and there's a lot of glory to be created in that temple. And they're looking at it, and they're weeping at it, and they're discouraged. They started, they're working hard. They've been working for 50 days at it, and they're discouraged. And God says, I want you to know something. I know what's happening. I know what's happening in the construction. I know what's happening in your heart, and I want you to know this. I'm with you. Take courage. I'm with you in your midst. My spirit dwells in your midst. There are times you're going to fight battles in life, and maybe you're not fighting one right now, but I'm telling you, you live this side of the sun, you're going to be, this side of heaven, you're, you're going to be fighting some battles. You're going to be fighting some knockdown, drag-out battles in your life at some point. And you're going to be discouraged. And at those times, you need to take your soul in gear and you need to remind your soul because your soul is constantly leaking. You need to remind your soul that God is with you. And that His Spirit has not abandoned you. He dwells in your midst. And He makes promises. He is a promise-keeping God. Third thing, fifth reason to be, to cheer up is He says, I'm going to shake the nations. He said to Israel, look, I, I, you know, you've, you're, the, 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 the promised land has shrunk, as I said last week, to this 20 square mile radius. That's all it is, about 20 square miles. The temple is in ruins. Their lands are in ruins. The crops have not been growing. They, they, there's, there's all kinds of devastation in the land. But God brings them back to the land, and he says, I'm going to shake the nations. And, and as you read that in verse, in verse 7, I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, look, you don't have the resources now, but I'm going to shake the nations, and and the, the wealth that's out there is going to come here, and this is going to be rebuilt. This temple is going to be rebuilt. It's going to take them a while to get that temple built. But Cyrus and Darius both released monies and gold and silver to to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Pagan kings in Babylon released resources. First, they sent back the gold and the silver Uh, implements that had been stolen out of the temple before the temple was destroyed, those all came back. And then they released more gold and silver and other uh, resources for the rebuilding of the temple. God was shaking the nations, and he's continuing to do that even to this day. Money pours into Israel um, uh, and... uh, uh, from, from the nations through their agriculture, through other ways that, that things are happening. Little Israel exports agriculture to the world. It's amazing. Amazing. God shaking the nation as resources come back to Israel. For thus says the Lord. It's an event that he, he says this is going to happen. I'm going to do this. And the writer of Hebrews quotes uh, verse, verse uh, 6 and 7. Uh, uh, 
and, uh, and, and adds that the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, God's going to shake the nations of the world, but the kingdom of God will never be shaken. God makes promises to his people, and he's, he says that, and he's, and he's been making good on them for many centuries. And he's not finished. He's not finished. He's continuing to shake the nations, and he will shake the nations in the final judgment when all the nations are shaken out. And the sheep are separated from the goats in that final judgment. He makes a promise that, uh, to Israel. In a sense, he's saying this, it, it will pay to have me as your God. There is a payoff to following the Lord God of hosts. I'm going to shake the nations. Next thing that God says, it's a, to designed to encourage them and us, is he says this. He says, the latter glory of this house, in verse 7, shall be greater than the first. The latter glory shall be greater than the first. There's two things. I, that, you know, biblical prophecy is interesting because oftentimes you, you take one verse and the first half will talk about Christ's first coming. The middle half will talk about his second coming. Uh, and uh, and uh, the third part will refer to yet another time period that might not be in, the, in chronological order. And you, it's, you, you've just got to sort these things out. So if you go to Israel today, is there a temple? No. So when did the glory, when was the glory in the second temple greater than the first? Now remember, Solomon's temple was gilded in gold. I mean, it glistened with gold. It's covered in gold. It's one of the reasons why it was destroyed. They wanted the gold. They burned the building to melt the gold out and get the gold. It was glorious. It glistened on the, on, on, on the side of the, the mountain. He says here that the latter glory of this house, the one that you're building, the one that you're discouraged about, the one that, that you're weeping over, the one that looks like it's nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple, there's going to be a greater than glory in this house than there was in Solomon's glory. Well, when did that happen? Well, it happened first when Jesus himself came to the temple. Because there's a greater glory masked in human flesh every day that Jesus came to the temple and taught there than there was in Solomon's temple. The Word made flesh. The Word veiled, that's how we sing it, right, at Christmas time, veiled in flesh incarnate dignity. That's him. There, there came to that second temple the day when the Messiah came, the one who is prophesied, the one who said he was going to come, the one who said in the Old Testament he was going to come and atone for sins, the lamb that John the Baptist points to and says, 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That, that Lamb came to the temple, veiled in flesh, in, in flesh, and there was more glory there than there ever had been in Solomon's temple. And there's going to be more glory still when Jesus comes to that same place at the end of time. When he sums up all of history. Third, fourth thing that he says to them was that the latter glory will be greater than the first. And then he says, you think of a people that has been taken away to, for 70 years because of their own disobedience. They've been taken away out of the land and now they're back. And he says, I know that you're discouraged. I know what's going on in your heart. But I want you to know this. I will give peace. I will give peace. Now, has there been a lot of peace in that part of the world in the intervening years between 520 B.C. and 2019 A.D.? Actually, the way that should be said is A.D. 20, 2019. In the year of our Lord, 2019. Has there been a lot of peace? No. There has not. And this is a prophecy that goes into the, into the distant future when they heard it. October 17th, 520, God says, I will give peace. Now, individually, as he dwells with us, does God give us peace even in the midst of our turmoils going on all around us? Yes. Yes. There's a foretaste of what is yet promised. Yes. He gives peace in the temples of God, right? Our lives. He gives t- peace to the body of Christ as they abide in him, as they sit under the blood of Christ, knowing that all of their sins are paid for in full. And he gives peace. So that we approach death with joy. A friend of mine was, it, it liked to go to England. And there was an older couple that he always stayed with. And uh, one year they went back and um, the man had died. And he heard this story from the wife. They were both in their 80s. And they had their morning devotions. And uh, at, after their morning devotions, they were sitting in the sunlight. And typical British, they were sipping tea. And, uh, and she said that he turned and looked up. They had a time of prayer. And then he turned and looked up and, and he said, I think today is the day. I think today is the day that Jesus is going to call me home. And they, they just looked at one another and they enjoyed the, their their years together, they reminisced a little bit and they said, let's pray. And they prayed. They prayed for about 10 minutes and when she looked up, she realized that he was gone. Because he, he went into eternity with perfect peace, knowing that all of his sins, past, present, and no more future, were all forgiven. They were under the blood of Christ. They had peace. The world does not have that. The world sometimes fakes like it does, but it does not. 
Voltaire was a famous atheist, and on his dying bed, he cried out in agony and fear for a priest to come because he wanted to confess his sins. We, the people of God, we know that he gives peace, and he's going to bring peace to this earth. He will. He's the prince of peace. Right now, he's working through our individual lives, and we have the opportunity to bring peace to every situation we live in as we live out the gospel with people and for, in front of people. This is what he does, people. This is what he did in the Old Testament, prefigured, and this is what he's going to do, and this is what he is doing in our lives. I'll have the worship team come now, but I, wanna, I want, as they're coming, would you turn to one more passage, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Because here's a, a scene that is oftentimes read at Christmas time in churches. And it's the scene when um, Mary and Joseph have brought uh, Jesus to be uh, circumcised. And Simeon sees them. Verse, chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, and they took him into his arms, he took him into his arms, and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. You see, there's nothing more glorious than Jesus. And Jesus came to the temple, and he comes into our lives when we receive him by faith. He comes into our lives, and he changes us. He dwells with us. He never leaves us. He, he dwells with us in our midst. He says to us day after day, relentlessly, day after day after day. Sometimes we try and drown him out. But he's always saying, I am with you. Take courage. I am for you. I am dwelling in your midst. He makes promises to us. And men and women, he's going to make good on every promise he's ever made because that's the God he is. Amen? Amen. He is the glory of Israel. Let's stand and sing about him.